And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Happy holidays, everyone! Hey, Merry Christmas! Happy Hanukkah! Happy Kwanzaa! Bright solstice! A pleasant Boxing Day, and of course, Merry, Merry Krampus. Krampus! Yes, it's time for our favorite Alpine Christmas demon again, St. Nicholas's Enforcer. We're a little bit late for Krampus Knock, but we're still going to have a little Krampus party, and you're all invited. There's going to be Krampus music, traditional Krampus refreshments like Krampus Off. Jimmy Sweets is going to show us how to make his favorite rum drink, tea and Krampus. Then we'll find out a little bit about old Krampus and the ways he's entering into American culture. And later on, I'm going to share where some of the best places to find Krampus celebrations are. Oh, that's too much already. Well, you're probably right. But even so, we've got more. In the middle of all this celebrating, we're going to have a fascinating interview with budding filmmaker Alan Holt and a tribute to the voice of the Grinch's theme song, Thurl Ravencroft. We're even going to squeeze in another pretentious reading from Scholastic Books and other fun stuff from the archives. It's pretty busy, so we better get cracking. First up, we got the Bleeding Man, and leading us into that, what's better than Queen? A Queen cover in Japanese, of course. Kyoto, 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 Kyo
ない男」「確かに彼は面もかわいそう」「殺す流れをひどすぎる」「そうだそうだ見逃してくれ」「何万だとか見逃せまへん」And now, the bleeding man. Four months they were prisoners of the child. Five days before he was born, the child began to fear leaving the valley. The fear did not last long, but it lasted long enough for his father to put poison in their food without the child's knowing. They ate the poison the mother, the father, and the child. I'm used to seeing his blood, but still, I find it unsettling. Does he ever stop bleeding? He's never stopped. He's a biological impossibility. Is he human? I believe that's what the government has sent you here to decide. I'm glad he's no longer my responsibility. Oh, God. Impossible. It just keeps flowing out of him. Why is he smiling? What is he staring at? Why don't you ask him? I want to know all about him. How did he get that way? <sighs> he has no name, no official name. We call him Job, sort of a nickname. We gave him that. Fascinating.、Name. I did not come here to be entertained by some droll little tale about his nickname, please. Friendly, aren't you? The government doesn't pay me to be friendly, it pays me to do a job. How long has he been this way? It's all in my report. If you'd like to read it, then possibly. Dr. I can... Santel, I'll read your report later. I trust it is thorough. Yes, quite thorough. The child felt the poison and changed it into water in his belly. He felt great sadness in his heart and in anger because they did not want him to live. They did not want him to be born into a world they had grown sick of. It was not their right to choose for him. Because his power was greater than theirs. He did not change the poison flowing through them to water. His hatred was at them, for they had let the world beat them. They began the agony of poison dying, but they could not die. He's approximately 23 years old and has always been like this, bleeding since birth. I just can't believe this. Surely some form of surgery, some sort of chemical no, therapy no, would. No, 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 we've tried all of those in the seven years he's been here. Psychochemistry, primal reconditioning, biofeedback, none of it has had any effect. He's a biological impossibility. What is his rate of bleeding? It varies. Somewhere between two and three pints an hour. That's not possible. No one can possibly He bleed. can and does. He doesn't do anything normally. I can give you ten reasons why he should be dead. Don't ask me why he isn't. I've seen enough. Show me to my office. I'm ready to read your report. I sat with them through this time. I sat with my brother and my sister by law, and they told me these things through their agony. They screamed to die, but the child was punished in them for letting the world beat them. 
Ainatari did not want to see the child born into this world. I feared his coming. There was nothing I could do. He came to birth. He should be dead. How could he have lived at all? Dr. Santel? Yeah. Report to me immediately. <laughs> I don't have to, sweetheart. I'm off the case, remember? You're drinking. Well, now that you mention it, perhaps you care to join me? Dr. Santel, do I have to remind you that you are responsible to me? You may be discharged from this case in your professional capacity, but your standing orders are to cooperate with me. Miss Dahl, I am cooperating. I'll stay out of your way. You stay out of mine. Do you realize to whom you are talking? <sighs> oh, yes. Are you sober enough to answer a few questions? I'm drunk enough to answer any questions you have. I don't think I could answer them sober. I realize it is quite natural for you to resent me. I'm responsible for your termination at this installation. Yet we're both professionals, Dr. Santel. We can't let emotional considerations enter into this. There is no place for emotion here. Oh, hell. That's easy enough for you to say you don't have any. Thank you. That's quite enough. It's not enough. You can't The subject is closed. It was not a child like expected. He bled. His chest was bleeding. I had expected hot, roaring fires. I had expected a child of frightful appearance. It was but a small baby that bled and could not talk. Now, what about his parents? Didn't you read my report? It said they committed suicide. I have to know more than that. You didn't list your sources of information on his early life. I need to know... Ask Natari. He can tell you everything. Who? Natari, his uncle. He comes every week to visit his nephew. Natai used to exhibit him at the carnival until we discovered him and brought him here. If you'll turn to the financial report near the back, you'll see that we pay him a small gratuity for the privilege of studying his nephew. We pay him by the week and he stops in to pick up his check and talk to his relative. Talks to his relative? Yes, Natai talks to Joe every week for an hour. Does he understand? I don't know. The father pulled the baby up and beat him into breathing. He laid the baby on the bed and went outside the house. After a little while, my sister by law got to her feet and she staggered after him. I tried to stop the bleeding of the baby's chest, but I was too scared about my brother and my sister by law. I ran outside. They laid side by side in the black earth of the garden. They were dead and five days decayed. Can you hear me? I'm not going to hurt you. I have a glass beaker. I am only going to collect a little of your blood. Never stops flowing from his chest. There. I'm leaving. What? What are you... He's cupped his hands. He's collecting his blood. He's drinking. Drinking his own blood. 
took the little one into my home, but the bleeding sickened my old woman and she died. So I took the bleeding one to the traveling show. The white people there did not sicken and die at the sight of his bleeding. What happened? Here, t take a sip of this. <coughs> Here, take another one. <coughs> it's only whiskey. What happened? drank his own blood. What? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Are you absolutely sure he drank his own blood? Of course I am. God, he, he's an animal. Damn. He did it on purpose. Just because I collected a beaker of his blood. You collected a beaker of his blood? That's what I said. Oh God, it's happened again. What the hell are you talking about? When I heard you scream, I came running. There's no glass on the floor. Don't be ridiculous. I had it with me. Hoberman, this is Santel. Have room 473 search for a glass beaker. Delays feeding time if you have to, but find that beaker. What's wrong? Look, something strange has developed in the last few weeks. Our monitors have been picking up unusual activity levels. His heartbeat and galvanic skin responses have been fluctuating wildly. What does that have to do with the glass? Well, a week ago, during one of his strange activity levels, the observation port on the wall of his room disappeared. Disappeared? How? I have no idea. We found traces of melted glass on the floor of his room. But what disturbs me the most is that we could detect no coronary activity at the time of the disappearance. What? That's right. For two hours, his blood was circulating and his heart wasn't functioning. He's not human, is he? In lines all around the tent, they would stand to pay good money to see the bleeding one. They all wanted to see him bleeding, and they were not sickened by it, and they did not die. The government people came and took the bleeding one from me. And that is all there is to the story, and it is the truth. This is what you're looking for. His blood type is O-lateral. Perfectly normal blood? Yes. It's too bad the government won't let us use it rate he produces it, he could supply into city all by himself. We are going to use his blood. And a lot more. That's why I was sent to take charge. What? You mean the government changed its policy? That's what I said. Why? We've given transfusions of his blood to prisoners, and it seems to have no bad effects. You've studied him for seven years. Do you have any idea how something like him is possible? Did you listen to Natalia's explanation? <laughs> That lunacy. Look, his version is the only evidence we have. Technically, is he human? I would say he is. Very well. I'm going to give the final go-ahead. For what? Dr. Santel. What's wrong? He's gone crazy. He's pushing through the door. The door's buckling. He's coming out. That's impossible. Give me that. Get the security guards. Use stunners. He's gone berserk. He's coming this way. Joe, stop. Stop. Go back. Stop. You can't stop him. You there. Use your stunners. End for his head. I repeat, end for his head. Good shooting. He's still alive. Is there much damage to his head? He's still alive. He's very much alive. I know he is too powerful to have a name. I am waiting for him. I am telling all this so I will not have to tell it again, and so that this warning is given to all who would have dealings with him. He is not ready to do what he will one day do, 
Do not walk in the shadow. Leave him alone, for he is not you. For 23 years he has been gathering power. That is all I have to say. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. It's your old friend, Jimmy Sweets. I'm here in the SISG Lounge. It's a little place we like to unwind in after a hard day at the office. Ah, the old proverbial slice of heaven I like to call my garage. But of course, there'll be no unwinding for me tonight. That is to say, until I've finished my prepping for the festivities. What preparations and what occasion, you ask? Why, it's our annual holiday party, a Krampus party to be exact. And what does every good holiday celebration beg for? You've got it, a tasty libation. And that's what I'm making right now, a drink perfectly suited for tonight's shindig. So follow along with me now as I play barkeep and prepare tea and Krampus. All right, so I got my big cocktail shaker. I'm about to open it up. It's it's radio or podcast, if you will. Oh, there you go. I got an old-fashioned pewter tea kettle style, and uh, I'm just going to get right into it. It's a tea and Krampus hooch recipe. All right, so the first thing we're going to need is a uh, one and a half ounces of Appleton Estate Reserve Rum. I got that right there. Pour it in. You're not going to pour it over ice. You're going to just put all the ingredients into the mixer or the shaker uh, first, and then we'll add ice at the end. All right, the next thing we need, five ounces of Karuba Original Blend Rum. Got it right here. Nice, all right, we got it right there. All right, five ounces of Leopold Brothers Rocky Mountain Blackberry Liqueur. All right, is it? Uh, yep, that's the liqueur. All right, and here's where we go big. We got 25 ounces of St. Elizabeth Allspice Dram, which is a, uh, you know, spiced rum. So you're going to have a, a laundry list of shopping to do. And uh, it'll make it all the better once you get to drink the fruits of your labor. All right, the next thing we have, one ounce fresh lime juice. Easy enough to find. Easy enough to pour in. The next thing, five ounces of pineapple juice. And I got that right here. All right, all right. And the final thing, or actually we have five ounces of BG Reynolds vanilla syrup. All right, get that syrup in. Where's my syrup? Where, oh, there we go. All right, pour it in, syrupy. All right, and last but not least, one dash of Agnostra bitters. And we're there. Now the rest of the rest of the shaker, you fill up with ice. the lid on and shake get good shaking going and uh, once you're done with that you're ready to serve 
Now you're gonna serve this in a pint glass, much like a Long Island iced tea thing, uh, and then you're gonna garnish it with nutmeg. So I'm gonna do that right now. I'm gonna pour into the glass and uh, you know filter the ice out. No ice in the cup. Perfect. Garnish it with a little nut nutmeg. All right, let's taste it. Mmm. It, it's a uh, you know it's it's pretty fruity. I I, I do like it to, and it's uh, you know it's a uh, it's sweet. And I'm Jimmy Sweets, and you know how I like sweets. So there you have it. There's T and Krampus. You put them out on a tray, and we serve them. You're ready to entertain. Welcome to the party, everyone. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you all could make it. We're just waiting right now for Jimmy Sweets to bring out the first refreshments. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> Here comes James with the refreshments. Ah, tea and crumpets for all. <laughs> all right, this is a pretty big portions. That's right, I got a bathtub full. Thank you, sir. All right, little toddy for the body. That's good. Yeah, it's, it's delicious. It's an excellent party drink. Yeah, too bad Greg's not here to share it with us. You might notice that Greg is missing tonight, but he's off with his kid doing some Krampus caroling. But we have him here by phone. Come in there, Greg. Are you there? Are you there, Greg? Hey, thanks, Frank and James. Uh, sorry I can't be there with you. We're out doing some Krampus caroling right now. Come on, guys, let's give them a little taste. Come on. Ready? One, two, three. We wish you a Merry Krampus. We wish you a Merry Krampus. We wish you a Merry Krampus and a Happy New Year. All right, back to you guys. Ah, uh, that sounds great. That sounds beautiful. Well, we'll save you some tea and Krampus there, Greg. Or maybe we won't. <laughs> See you later. Yeah, well, we have even more refreshments coming up, everybody, including two Krampus beers and some Krampus sauce, which I have no idea what that is, but uh, Jimmy there's making me some, and I'm going to eat it. That's my little surprise. <laughs> First, though, we thought a few words were in order about the founder of our feast, and that's Krampus. I think that the Christmas demon has been out in the mainstream long enough for most Americans to be aware of this Christmas tradition. But for those that are a little fuzzy on the subject, 
we're going to cover the basics, and maybe the rest of you will pick up a few tidbits that you haven't heard before. Krampus is a slippery character. His origins are kind of shrouded in the mist of time in the mountainous regions of Central Europe. He's got many names and many variations of his legend. In fact, in parts of Austria, he could be known as Kraubauf or Bartel or Wubartel, and in Hungary, he's called Kramputz. God bless you. <laughs> There's also different um, descriptions of his appearance. Mostly, though, he's seen as a, a fearsome creature, a demon probably, uh, covered with dark shaggy hair, with long goat horns, and at least one of his feet is a cloven hoof, the other sometimes being a human foot and sometimes being kind of a bare clawed thing. And yes, he always has the long, hideous tongue. Most of the time, he is a traveling companion of St. Nicholas. And depending on the story, he might be in chains enslaved to St. Nicholas, or he might be a, a willing servant to him. Many times, Krampus is wearing bells. Uh, he either carries a bundle of birch branches or a rod or a whip and always has kind of a bag or a wash barrel or sometimes a basket uh, on his back. When St. Nick and uh, Krampus run into kids, St. Nicholas will give out gifts to the good children and Krampus, well, he gives out lectures and warnings and maybe a beating with his birch branches. And if the children are particularly bad, he stuffs them in his bag and uh, takes them back for punishment in either A, St. Nicholas's home. You mean St. Nicholas's basement. <laughs> or B, Krampus's lair. C, hell. Or D, 12th century Moorish Spain. All of these place, things take place in the first weeks of December, and mostly on December 5th, uh, which is Krampus Knock, the night before St. Nicholas's Day. And as I said before, there are many different traditions dealing with Krampus. Um, in some places, they'll have people will dress up as Krampus and St. Nicholas, and like we said, go from home to home or into businesses. We were talking to a Mrs. Long down the street, and she was telling as a kid, a Krampus came to her house and frightened her, and the mother uh, threw him out and said, don't come back next year. <laughs> it's too traumatizing. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, freaked her out. <laughs> so there's that, and there's also, um, like in Croatia, a kind of a tradition like we have where St. Nicholas will come at night and bring gifts and then also a golden stick which represents the children's good deeds. But then later on, Krampus comes. And if the kids are bad, he'll take all the gifts and then leave terrible gifts and replace them like coal or just garbage. And then leaves a silver stick which represents uh, the kids' bad deeds. But, no, but not a real silver stick, because that would be a good present. <laughs> no, I guess just colored. I don't know why it's not black or something. Now, did you say that there was a like a run or something, or it's all parade? Oh, no, no. Uh, that's another tradition. That's That used to be more in the mountainous regions, and now it's spreading all over. It's called the Krampuslaufen, or a Krampusuga, or something or other. It's like, sometimes it's a parade. The old days used to be to just ran and roam through the streets. It's a bunch of people dressed up as Krampus. In uh, some of the older places, they got carved wooden masks. Today, they got rubber masks and everything. But they're roaming around, you know, frightening kids, but mostly going after adults. And um, along with these Krampuses, there's a lot of these pagan spirits or 
uh, creatures or wild men. You got to look on on YouTube. They have tons of them. Some of them just show them meandering everywhere. Lots of them are like regular parades with floats and everything, and they they've got them caged off from the side. But I can't figure out that they always show them wrestling around and beating up on guys. I don't know if the guys jump the fence and attack them, or every once in a while they reach in and grab the guys and they. But it shows them with the torn up clothes, but they're never quite clear how this altercation happens. So it's not, uh, you know, so they call it like a run, but it's more like, you know, not a, I was thinking about giving them numbers and they're <laughs> no. running around and they're, you know, basically they're they're it, running and... Uh, it's not an athletic event. It's like a zombie walk or, or a zombie run or something like that. And in some places... From what I saw, it's just like a regular parade. I guarantee you, but someplace in this world, somebody's running around with numbers on it, and they're beating people for charity. <laughs> I, I, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And I will gladly pay $10 a beat to, to the person that comes to my door for that. <laughs> they, they're, along with this, I said there's these wild men, or one of the weird ones, the sh- uh, Monner. Uh, it's kind of this old bundle of straw or stick guys. Uh, some of them look like brooms, I, they, and they were supposed to sweep the way for St. Nicholas. They had those at the uh, Krampus L.A. Krampus Loft this year, and, and they got the idea for this bad Mittendorf, Austria. But I saw this other place, um, well, it, it's a Berkish garden in Germany, and they had the Buttmandel, which is a bundle men, which means bundle men. And they're all covered in sticks and straw tied up. And they're wearing masks. And they got bells around them. And they're marching around with the Krampuses. Uh, but they're causing more trouble than the Krampuses. They're going around uh, swatting women. Supposedly it's a fertility thing. And uh, poking. <laughs> they're poking kids. And they're doing all kinds of pranks, like moving furniture out of people's houses. And all during all this chaos, St. Nicholas is wandering around, calmly blessing kids and passing out gifts. <laughs> It's a real crazy thing. I gotta go there sometime. And so they have, they have us, uh, you know, all these things are, are all they, they, these guys dress up like brooms. They, they, you know. Well, these bundle men, the other ones aren't. In the Berkeley's Garden guy, it's just a weird wicker kind of guy. They're just kind of a different kind of Krampus sort of. But the other ones, they're like brooms, and I think they took these bundle men and made them into a, a broom character just for the idea of, oh, we're sweeping away this stuff to allow St. Nicholas like to come. They're almost like a scarecrow, but with made of sticks and straw or something like what that. What the heck they are. you got to look them up on the Internet. They're very strange. I can't figure it out. There were other different celebrations. There were other different traditions uh, about Krampus. One that was popular around the turn of the century was Krampus Garden, which was just greeting cards and postcards and tins of candy. And by turn of the century, you mean 1900s? Yes, 2000s. sorry. <laughs> it was from the 18- You're dating yourself, Frank. Right, right. It was 1890s. Uh, clear to World War II, really, um, that this was popular. Of course, not here, but all through uh, the German-speaking peoples, basically. Um, all of them had the illustrations of Krampus, of course, doing what he does, abuse children. And, uh, but later on, they became more fun as it got closer to World War II, and in some cases more lascivious. They had him chasing women uh, instead of children. All of this, as you can imagine, uh, might disturb parents or maybe the church, but the real humbugs against Krampus turned out to be the fascists. Uh, I've heard about the Nazis not caring too much for it, uh, but really the big ones were the Austro-fascists that took power in Austria 
back in 1934. They had like a little civil war, and they came out on top. And they actually had laws prohibiting the celebration uh, or using Krampus in the Christmas celebration. And they even arrested some people for disobeying it. So all of these Krampus traditions are even more muddled up by the fact that Krampus is only one of the many companions of St. Nicholas. Yes, St. Nicholas plays the field. There is all sorts, there's all sorts of these. They're all heavies. They're all punishers or warners or... Uh, you know, St. Nicholas gives the gifts, and the companion is always the guy that warns you. I guess we kind of combine that with our Santa Claus, where he gives the, the good children gifts and cold to the bad kids. But all over there, they have the two people. And St. Nicholas, he keeps his hands clean. He has his, his minion to take care of that stuff. Yeah, well, I guess that, that represents American culture a little bit better. Well, first of all, we're hybrid of everything, right? So... And and uh, we're you know I guess we're not afraid to get our hands dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you get the, there's the iron fist and the velvet glove all on Santa. But one of these um, companions of Saint Nicholas is Hans Trapp. Isn't that a uh, singing troupe from uh, Kids and Family? No, that's in Austria. Oh, the, this is in France, in Eastern France, and that's where the German speaking culture was he's sort of a restless spirit of an excommunicated knight and he splits his time between saint nicholas and the christ child they have him the, wandering through the streets <laughs> they, and, and the christ child wanders around yeah well or they I, carry I, the christ child. i think no it's weird because in some of these places the christ child is represented as a woman dressed up okay. i don't know how that is and how you even know it's the Christ child but I think in the Protestant countries when they wanted to get away from the saints in that part they they decided to replace it with the Christ child you know coming through the gift of gifts and um, oh, Hans Trapp would come through and you know of course he is a he's more like a man he's got a big floppy hat a big dark beard sometimes he's in change like from Krampus he's got a rod for beating they always have the, the stick there in other parts, um, I think this is in Germany, and maybe, I don't know where outside of Germany, but I think in other parts of Germany, there's a guy named Neck Rupecht. He's kind of a judgy, gimpy-legged servant in St. Nicholas. He also looks like a man, but mostly a white beard, and he wears a hood and a cloak. Um, he beats the kids with a bag of ashes for some reason. I don't know why. And he also gives out crappy gifts. Like uh, socks and underwear? Or what? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Something you don't want. No toys, that's for sure. And sometimes, just for laugh, he'll leave the kids a stick in their shoes so the parents can beat them at their own leisure. It sounds like uh, all these guys are like, uh, you know, Santa Claus's middle management. <laughs> <laughs> well, this guy specifically is. There's some legend him that he was an old farmer or something, and he died, and I don't know, and now he has to go around with St. Nicholas doing this. He's very preachy. He's always like telling kids what they should do. And there's one, I think it's him, where, where you would come to the door and the kids are supposed to perform a little trick or dance. And if he doesn't like it, he beats the kids. I don't know. All this stuff is, is mixed up together. There's another guy in the Netherlands, which is even stranger. I think they just decided we need somebody. So they just pulled something out of a hat. He's called Black Pete. He's, got, he's a Moor from Spain, from old Spain. But now he's degenerated and mostly just entertaining the kids and giving out sweets. He doesn't beat anybody. 
Well, there you have it. That's Krampus and his compatriots. That was pretty dry. I think we need more refreshments. Yes, we do. And uh, I got something special for you next. Oh, okay. Coming back. Yeah, Jimmy is leaving the uh, garage slash uh, studio. And, uh, oh, oh, frosty mugs. Very nice. Oh, now I see. This has got to be the beers. Yep, I got some beer. And uh, Krampus beer. Uh, oddly enough, we got two examples of Krampus beer. Uh, one's a Southern Tier uh, from the Southern Tier Brewing Company. Uh, and they put out a Krampus, uh, a beer called Krampus. And it's an American Pilsner. And uh, one is uh, from an Italian company called the Berificicio uh, del Ducato. And they put out its own Krampus beer. And it, it's a Belgian strong pale ale. It's so, nice. I like the label. It got Krampus and Saint Nicholas on it. Yep. Let's it's a, it's let's a, try the Italian one first. All right. It's the it's the best of both worlds. All right. The uh, thank you. There we go. Get yourself some. All right. Oh, that's pretty good. It's good. Now this one tastes. Uh, you can taste a little bit of licorice, and uh, that is there. It's nice, and and a little bit of malt. Uh, uh, it's smooth. I like it. All yeah, right. Well, it's a pale ale, so <laughs> it's easy for me. I'm not much of a beer drinker, but this is pretty good. I like yeah. it. Yeah. All right. On to the next one. All right. Man, we are Crumpus Epicurean <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, the power of the power of podcasting. Nice. Okay. Wait a minute, it's not coming off. Oh, now we're screwed. Oh, good thing right. it's also a twist top. <laughs> All right. Now he's pouring this golden nectar of the gods into another frosty mug. These are kind of cold. They're hidden. These are frosty mugs. It's not the Power Podcast. It's not a plastic cup. <laughs> All right. Very nice. And now this is an American one. This is the Krampus from New York. Let's taste that. This one, this is good. It's a little citrusy, this one. And, but it's kind of bitter for me. Yeah. I like the other one better. Hey, that's not an endorsement, though. I like this one, I think, better. All right. Because uh, you're a beer drinker. I like well, stuff that's yeah. not so much like beer. And I'm an American, for Christ's sake. <laughs> so, you know, very good. Well, you know what? We got to have something else besides this hooch. So I think you have something. I do. I, I have some Krampus off. All right. First of all, what is this Krampus off? What is a Zoff? Well, Zoff is, is basically German sweet bread. Um, my godmother used to make it for me. And, uh, oh, yeah. I and, remember that. And that's, uh, you know, that's where uh, I got an interest in Zoff. It's delicious. Okay. And uh, So what is this Krampus off? I have... uh, so we're going to make the Krampus off was basically making little men uh, out of sweet bread. Okay. And... Uh, you can really use any Zoff recipe you find, but uh, but I have one, and uh, I spent all night uh, converting uh, the standard measurements into metric, so uh, just, so, just so we can be in the in the, in the you know in the spirit uh, of Krampus. So uh, here's the ingredients: 500 grams of flour, 20 grams of fresh yeast, 50 grams of butter, 250 uh, milliliters of milk. One egg, 75 grams of sugar, 
More if you like it sweeter, and I do, so you better make it 90. <laughs> better make it 90. A pinch of salt. That's not metric. That's universal. Uh, one egg and some uh, milk for brushing uh, for after, and then 12 small raisins or dried cranberries uh, yeah, nice. for the eyes. They're very nice. Yeah. So I, I've already made... Uh, I see that. Uh, you got a little uh, bowl of dough over there. A batch, so that because uh, you have to let the, the yeast rise for right. for an hour. So we've done that, but I'll go over this just yeah, so. What's the preparation? So, so you heat milk uh, until lukewarm and then add the yeast in and the sugar. Uh, stir until it's all dissolved. Uh, then you melt butter, uh, put flour into a bowl, add yeast, uh, the yeast milk, the egg, the melted butter, and salt. Knead to smooth dough, cover bowl with a damp cloth, and place in a warm location. Let's sit approximately an hour. So that's what we've gotten done. I, I've got I got the dough right in front of me, and uh, we're gonna preheat the oven to 200 degrees Celsius. And I've also made some already and put put them on the tray uh, in in preparation for cooking. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna just make one. I can't see that in anyone right now. He's got that in the other room, but he's gonna make them for me right before my eyes. Create a Krampus from dough. Yeah, and so we're gonna do that. We're gonna add that to the the ones I've already made, and we're gonna throw them in the oven, and uh, we'll actually be eating them uh, during the show. So you already you already needed the dough, so now you're just gonna make. Uh, well, anyway, go on with the procedure. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. So you, so you split split the uh, split the dough into six equal sized pieces. Uh, so that you can make six crumpuses. This recipe is for six crumpuses. Uh, stir an egg with a bit of milk and brush the crumpus with it uh, for the eyes pressing the raisins. Basically, they look like uh, gingerbread men. So Except you, twisted. Yeah, so you, I guess. Yeah, so it's First a, of all, make one it, for us right So here. right here, I'm, I'm going to make this out. So you think of a twisted donut. You know, like a donut twist. Everybody loves those. Glaze, oh, chocolate, yeah, whatever you that. want. All right. So... So basically, oh, I've seen I've seen this in pictures of, of the. Net. So you start twisting it, and, and you make one twist for the legs in in a U. So it's a twist, and then you make another twist in another shape of the U for for a uh, for the the uh, for the arms. So you have two U's for the the, the, oh, legs, the legs and the, and arms. the arms. All right, and they're like inverted, so they're facing the opposite. And then you make one more twist. And you put it on oh, for, the for, for the body and for the head. And then you add two raisins or cranberries for the eyes. And, and, and note he has twisted the top of the head so it has horns. And I don't know what that is in the bottom. I'm guessing that's a hoof or just a mistake. Well, but I do you, have, yeah, one one cloven hoof. <laughs> if you, uh, if you, there you go. Very good. You leave one, one and, of the ends and one untwisted. one shaped so. thing that we're going to say is a foot. So there you go. And then now you bake in the middle of the oven for 200 degrees. Yeah, for about 18 to 20 minutes until they're golden brown, brown and uh, you take oh, nice. take them out and, and let them cool. So well, I, I'm I'm gonna do that, <laughs> and well, that, in 20 minutes <laughs> we're gonna have, we're gonna have some Krampus knot. Those look pretty good. Uh, while they're baking, we're gonna go back to drinking, and uh, you're gonna go back to listening. We're gonna play another reading from Scholastic Books, and we're gonna have another in our series of uh, interviews with interesting people. So enjoy, and uh, we'll join you back when the Krampus bread is done.
And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The following story's origin is obscured by time, but one point is agreed upon. It is an old story. Many versions have been told over the years, and I'm sure you've heard at least one of them. In 1970, Anne McGovern's version was published by Scholastic Books in The Haunted House and Other Spooky Poems and Tales. It is this version that still haunts my dreams. The Velvet Ribbon, a story. Once there was a man who fell in love with a beautiful girl, and before the next full moon rose in the sky, they were wed. To please her husband, the young wife wore a different gown each night. Sometimes she was dressed in yellow, other nights she wore red or blue or white, and she always wore a black velvet ribbon around her slender neck. Day and night she wore that ribbon, and it was not long before her husband's curiosity got the better of it. Why do you always wear that ribbon, he asked. She smiled a strange smile and said not a word. At last her husband got angry, and one night he shouted at his bride, Take that ribbon off, I'm tired of looking at it. You will be sorry if I do, she replied so I won't. Every morning at breakfast, the husband ordered his wife to remove the black velvet ribbon from around her neck. Every night at dinner, he told her the same thing. But every morning at breakfast and every night at dinner, all his wife would say was, you'll be sorry if I do, so I won't. A week had passed. The husband no longer looked into his wife's eyes. He could only stare at that black velvet ribbon around her neck. One night as his wife lay sleeping, he tiptoed to her sewing basket. He took out a pair of scissors. Quickly and quietly, careful not to awaken her, he bent over his wife's bed and snip went the scissors, and the velvet ribbon fell to the floor, and snap, off came her head. It rolled over the floor in the moonlight, wailing tearfully. I told you you'd be sorry. He won't 
another in our series of interviews with interesting people. Today, Frank speaks with Alan Holt about his career in the film business and his current projects. I'm here with Alan Holt, the sculptor, effects craftsman, writer, diver, and soon-to-be filmmaker. Hello. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. Anytime. We're here surrounded uh, in this shop in Bacoima by our latest project. You're starting, you're, the, you're heading up uh, an effects job right now. I am, yeah. And this is new for you. This is your first one. It is my first one. It's hard to to put it in context because it, it, it sort of came to me because I was a friend of someone who was uh, an assistant to a line producer, you know, just a random acquaintance, and I just got pulled in. Actually, there's a more of an origin story. The, um, I used to live in this house um, with a, two friends of mine, and we had a big... Uh, swimming pool. This is really great house for for parties. We had a swimming pool, a hot tub, and it was sort of uh, sort of secluded, you know. So we would uh, sometimes have parties with like seventy five people, oh, and we would cook, you know, huge amounts of food and and uh, you know booze and and just hang out and um, and you know make bonfires and stuff and. They, they called the house the embassy because um, the three of us all went to school together uh, out at the University of Kansas. And uh, so whenever, every year, whenever like new alumni would move out here to LA to work in film, they'd, a lot of times they'd crash at that house or we'd just be sort of like a resource for people to talk to about, you know, stuff. And so a lot of those parties, half of them were from, half the people were from, from that school. And so they called it the embassy. This is a great place. Um, and um, so one of the one of the girls randomly, there were some people who like at at some one of these parties were like, "Can we see your workshop?" And I was like, "Well, I, I don't have much of a workshop here. I just have some little sculptures I'm working on. I might have had a zombie sculpture. I don't know. Uh, and and my computer where I had some some video and photos of of effects stuff I'd done and and stop-motion stuff and all that and so at some point during one of these parties I just you know had like four or five people come back and I just kind of showed them around this little dinky workshop and and the stuff I was working on and one of those girls remembered that and this was like three years before and she's the one who eventually ended up with this job you know basically as a, a I guess she was she was acting as a line producer, but she was also like assistant to the executive producer. Anyway, so in some meetings, she 
they were talking about um, uh, creature effects, and so she she thought of me, and so she she pulled me in uh, based on that. Wow! See, see how it works, man. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, and man, you know, everybody always says the whole thing is to recognize the opportunities, and um, and you know, and be ready for it. and be ready for it. And and so when I, when she first called me, she was like, "Are you?" Do you only work through big shops like Legacy, Masters, or do you ever do anything on your own? And um, my my thought at the time was, well, I'm focusing on my movie now, so I don't care about any of this other stuff. So I'm basically just going to say no, and I'll give her the phone number for you know uh, somebody at at various other shops because you know we all know, like you and I know, tons of different people. But then, you know, then I, the, this voice in my head said, well, you've got to at least keep an open mind for a second and, and at least hear what it is. And so that's when I, I decided to go to that first meeting, have dinner with the director and, and just talk about it. And then that's when I realized, oh my God, this is actually a big thing. Because when she first said it, I had no idea what kind of project it was. It, it, it could have, as far as I could tell, it could have just been some short film or something like that. Um, but then, you know, we actually met and talked about it. I was like, oh my God, I've got to try to, to at least stay in the conversation. And, and But I was sure they weren't gonna give it to me because it was so big. You yeah. know, I was like, well, I'll tell them what I would do. I'll tell them how I would do different things. And, um, and then in the back of my mind, I guess I always figured, and then they'll use that information to go to a bigger shop or something like that. You know, because I wasn't trying to underbid anybody or, or you know, like jump in and, be a new effect shop because I mean there isn't that much work anymore and it's like there's plenty of really capable shops already <laughs> doing the stuff and fighting over what little there is you know uh, but anyway yeah so that's how it started and then but then once it as it became real I was like I've got to knock this out of the park I've got to because this could be the only time this ever happens you know so uh, started talking to people and I Never would have believed that I could get the quality of people that I have, you know, and, and um, yeah, so it's it's right now, nothing has gone wrong yet, so it's... <laughs> oh my uh, gosh, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, nothing has gone wrong yet as of this moment. I mean, it's it's a constant scramble, you know, uh, but, but right now everything is going amazingly well. You know, I'm, I am working seven days a week till midnight, but, you know, this is the life we signed up for, you know, yeah. so... I, uh, and you know, it's worth it if it if it comes out. Well, Excellent. Yeah. Well, the stuff looks great so far that I've looked around and saw. So. Yeah, is doesn't it? It's <laughs> it's so cool. So uh, don't let me fuck this up. Yeah. Well, I've how got, am I gonna do that? I've got to, <laughs> and that's what I'm I'm telling everybody. I'm like, this is the, the situation. Things are so well aligned right now. Um, being really supported by Masters Effects, you know, Todd, sort of mentoring me through the process. Um, you know, because this this whole thing, I mean, I'm, without saying too much, basically, um, I was just looking for a place to rent, a shop to rent to do the thing, because, you know, I was like, well, am I just going to go get some industrial space and set up all this stuff? But, you know, and that, that's a way to do it, uh, and a lot of people do that, but it just, there's so many, th like, I mean... Yeah, it's tough, the setup time and the, and the money involved. And the fact that you're dealing with huge amounts of stuff like fiberglass and stuff like that, and and if you go to a sh if you can rent out a shop that's already dealt with the air quality management crap and and all that regulatory stuff, and they've already got it like a system in place, 
this is like really the the way to do it. Um, so I I was looking for a place to to just rent, and you know, it ended up working out really well here. And um, yeah, and not only that, but they're also trying to um, sort of back me and help me through the process, you know, because um, I, don't know, I guess you know if you ask Todd, he'd probably say that the it's it's a just the idea that the business is going this way, where you know it may be part of a new business model to rent the shop out to certain people from time to time for for jobs like this, rather than just have it be yeah you know they, their own company. And, and a lot of shops are doing that now, like uh, uh, oh you know various different ones. Yeah, not not all like where we worked last time. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, that one. Uh, and also to fine artists. I, yeah, I noticed that. yeah, they're bringing they're, them in. That's happening too. Yeah, use their the shop's crew to do fine art. You, you, I forgot. You came from the University of Kansas. You yes, said. Yes, sir. Now, when you were studying there, did you want to come into the effects business? Were you studying art? What were you studying there? And what What was your plan? What did you think you were going to do? I was getting a film degree. Okay, so film school. Yeah, and and uh, I don't, I I I think it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Um, I started doing effects when I was a teenager, like 13, and I did it through high school. And then, and then when in film school, I ended up doing it on other people's films. Um, and the size kept getting bigger; like it was little tiny things. And then, and then it was the kind of thing where, like, oh, now the university is making this $50,000 historical movie, you know. And then I just kind of wedged myself in and said, "I can do this." And they said, "Okay, well, how much would that cost?" And okay, well, here, do that. So I, you know, ended up making some effects for a different thing, and then, and um, and and then eventually I did uh, my own film there, and we raised a bunch of money, and I made a bunch of sci-fi type stuff. Um, so uh, I mean, for me, it was a cool thing because it, this it, film school puts you around a bunch of other filmmakers, and you um, you all work on each other's stuff and kind of come up together doing stuff. It's not about the degree. I mean, I've been in LA um, as of today, like. Uh, almost 15 years and nobody's ever asked me if I had a degree you know but uh, being in that situation um, was good there were a group of us that um, worked on all the big films that came through town you know because we we like started on the on the little student stuff and then while we were in school like uh, it was the 90s and so people were still shooting everything on film uh, so it, it seemed like two or three times a year somebody would 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 have come up with 50 grand or something like that or and they'd be making their 16 millimeter black and white feature film that was going to be the next uh, Blair Witch or something yeah. and 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 so we would all just go work on that and we would just grip we would do we would be grips or camera assistants or whatever and then then it would be oh there's somebody doing a half a million dollar film and they need a bunch of grips can you guys leave town for a month and go do this? And we're like, hell yeah. <laughs> we'd go, and, and we just did that. We'd bounce, me and, and a core group of friends, we'd bounced from film to film like that all through college. Or, well, oh, I mean, starting really sophomore year. And so, like two or three times a year, we would just go. I, I mean, I left in the middle of classes a couple times for a month uh, and still did okay academically. Um, I mean, sometimes you do it during the summer or whatever, or work it in somehow or other. But, but we basically were just like, 
just jumped on everything we could because we wanted to get in on, on a real movie set and just keep learning and, and get into the mix. And so we ended up, me and a couple friends, I had a, this um, a friend of mine, Ben Kraut, who, uh, who actually dropped out of school in the middle of this because he was getting so much work as a, as a grip on bigger and bigger stuff. He was like, I don't need the degree. I'm just going to make money. Yeah. And, and, and then what he was able to do was... He because so because he stepped out of school and was still living right there like among us. He um, kept getting on bigger things, and he would drag us with him. And 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 we you know he would. I, I remember a couple times he called me up and he'd be like, "What are you doing? I need you to drop what you're doing and get out here to Springfield, Missouri, and work on this film." And 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 a couple times it, I can't tell you how exciting that was. To make that decision, be like, and sit there, think about it, think about it, think about it, and be like, all right, I'm doing it. And then, <laughs> and then, just you know, just drive for a couple hours, end up somewhere, and and they they'd have a condo set up for us, and they're like, you're gonna live in this condo for a month, and it was like just me and a, and a bunch of good friends, and we'd fill, like spend all night just drinking beer, playing poker, or whatever. Then the next morning, go right back to set, work 14 hours, and then and then it was just this crazy adventure, I can't, you know. Uh, and, and we were doing it, you know, we were doing these, these, they were shooting on 35 or whatever, and we were the guys, we were the crew, we were like, you know, just doing whatever crazy thing, uh, you know, climbing on the roofs of houses and trains and stuff, and just, just making movies, you know, just making movies with the uh, grip truck full of gear and, and whatever. And, um, and, and so then, so Ben ended up working, uh, so we, we worked on a few films, like I also did art departments, you know, I worked on Robert Altman's Kansas City in 95. That was actually the first movie I ever worked on that was there in 95. And then, uh, uh, and he, so, he, so, so what I'm saying is some big stuff actually went through Kansas City. Um, so Robert Allman came through and then a couple years later, uh, Ang Lee came through, did his Civil War movie, Ride, Ride with the Devil, with um, Tobey Maguire and, and um, Jewel and Skeet Ulrich and um, um, a, a lot of other, uh, a lot of those like that guy actors, Yeah, you know. John Durbin and um, uh, all kinds of people like that, and uh, so so Ben got on that shoot um, as a, as a grip, and um, and that was going for a long time. They built a whole fake city. They built a whole fake version of Lawrence, Kansas, because of the Quantrill. Uh, oh yeah, you know the raid and the burning of Lawrence and all that stuff. They built a whole city in Pattonsburg and. Um, so, you know, so the whole time, you know, for, for a few weeks we were thinking, oh, wow, Ben got a great gig on that thing. That's cool. And then out of the blue, he calls us up and he's like, dude, you got to get down here because we just need bodies who know how to, who know how to, who've, who've worked, you know. And because we had started on a $40,000 movie or a $10,000 movie and then a forty, and then a fifty, and then a $500,000 movie, now it's a $35 million movie and we're the, we get on as crew. And you know Ben drags us in, me and a couple other guys, and we had eight weeks, and we joined the union as grips, and uh, uh, got paid union money. You know, which at, for us at the wow, time yeah. was like silly money. We were like, I, I don't even what, what? you know, and, <laughs> and um, but I mean, it was hellish like working. I mean, we were working at least 15 hour days because that's the thing about working on movies in the midwest in a place like Kansas is if a Hollywood movie comes through Kansas why are they there well they're there because of the the exteriors 
the locations. So if you're working on a movie out there, you're not going to be in a stage setting up, you know, yeah, on a stage. You're going to be carrying. Uh, you're going to be setting up 500 feet of dolly track out in a field. And you're going to be carrying dollies and giant, you know, 12 by 12 frames all over. You know, the so it's it's it was it was really crazy. So it, that was a 35 million dollar movie, and um, and then we did a few more like two to three million dollar movies after that uh, during school. And then, um, and then you graduate. Now, now, how did you? I mean, you came here obviously because that was the next step. But yeah, did you come here to do work on effects, or did you come here to, to you know work on film? Uh, really, both. I've always wanted to do both. You know, I, I um, and and at least like check some things off the list. You know, yeah, like, really want to do this, that. You know, um, always. Always loved effects, you know. Always read Cinefix, and you know, like I said, I started making molds and rubber heads in my mid-teens. You know, I was doing the foam latex monster heads in the parents' kitchen. You know, and um, always, always loved effects, and but also, you know, always wanted to be a filmmaker, or storyteller. I mean, I was writing stories since I was a little kid and that kind of stuff. So, came out here. Um, my idea was to come out here and kind of get into effects and and work on some big stuff, you know, try to get into the big companies, do some cool things. And then I, the idea was to kind of establish myself in LA doing that, start making a living, you know, get it together and then, and then figure out how to, how to get into directing and stuff. And that's what you're doing now. You, you've been working the last couple of years on this film project. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing now. It's only, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to take 15 years, but, uh, <laughs> I'll take what I can get. So, <laughs> what is this film project you're working on now? Right now, we're calling it. Uh, um, hoping to come up with a better name. Some people like that name. Some people don't. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film about. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. You were. Uh, how long were you writing the script for this? I, I think I read it a year ago, or or. One of the drafts. Yeah, the draft I'm on as of today is number seven. Um, and um, honestly, I don't remember when I actually started writing. I don't remember the date. But, but you know, just like everything else, this is something that's changed a bunch, too. Um, I mean, that I've also been writing scripts since I got out here. And um, that's another story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can I tell you another story? Yeah, of course. Screenwriting story. Many as you want. <laughs> All right. This is my this is my screenwriting uh, history in a nutshell. It's kind of um, back in I, I was always writing scripts, you know, through school and stuff. That but they weren't that good because I I had no understanding of uh, structure. I I just was like going on instinct about you know tone and stuff like that. Um, And then uh, I, I remember it was we were cleaning up after a Halloween party at an effects shop back in like 2002 or something like that. And I had a buddy who's who's another filmmaker who you should interview, um, Jim Ojula. He just made oh his, yeah yeah he just made his first film, um, his first feature. Um, so we were cleaning up after this Halloween party, you know, filling like a like a semi truck full of uh, I don't know decorations or something something like that. Um, 
and he mentioned something about going to a pitch fest. And I was like, what is that? What do you mean? What, what is that? And he's like, well, they have these, these things where they get real movie executives to uh, come and take pitches from, from you. So if you've got a script and you want to pitch it to a real guy who could really buy it, you know, you, you pay for some time and then you go and you get to go pitch your movie to like five different real uh, executives. And then and I was like, wow, I have to do that. <clears throat> I didn't have a script at that time, but man, just the idea of being able to sit across the table from somebody who, who was like a real executive and just pitch him a movie idea. I could not resist the idea of that. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't care what it was. And so I bought tickets and I just got in the car that morning and I was like, what am I gonna, cause I, I had some different ideas and I was like, all right, I'm gonna give him this idea or that idea and just see what happens, you know, just see what it's like. I had to do it. and. And so I did. I went in there and I came up with this idea, sort of I'd been thinking about for a while. But but I sat down across from the first guy, and I'm not going to say his name. Because he's a real real yeah. sort of slick, douchey guy who wouldn't shake your hand and had a real like a super expensive coat. And I found out later he's written some books on how to make it in Hollywood and stuff. That's one of those guys. And um, I, I'm, I'm sure he's very talented and successful and all that. But um, yeah, I sat across from him, and and I just you know pitched him this idea and he just stared me right in the eyes and he's like yeah I just don't uh, I just don't think that's very good or, or something like that and, and he's like what else you got and I pitched him some other ideas and he was like yeah you know uh, I, I just don't uh, I just don't think that's a very big idea I just don't I don't see anything and and then he he said some other stuff but he really kind of cut me down completely just completely disinterested <laughs> and and, uh, and and so the effect that that had on me was I walked out of the room and I was like, you know what? I'm not nervous anymore because this guy just cut me apart and now who gives a f Now I'm just gonna, <laughs> so, so now I'm just gonna walk in like a and own the place and I'm just gonna just go for it because I've already been cut down so who gives a f So, and that's what I did. I went in, I gave the exact same pitch but just acted like I own the place and like I had the best thing ever and I did that three more times that day and all three of those guys wanted to read it like they all wanted to buy that movie and 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 then the and they all gave me their contact info and their assistant's name and all this <laughs> but the trouble was I didn't have the script and so so I went home and I was like oh my god this is really going to happen I got to do this and and uh <laughs> So I went home and, and like pounded out this script and it sucked because I didn't I didn't know yet that your first script sucks. Writing a screenplay is a process you really have to learn. It it, it doesn't matter how cool your idea is or anything. None of it. You have to you have to like spend years learning how to do it. And I didn't know that. So I sent these guys my like first or second draft of of this script, which was which a, a horrible mistake. The script was terrible, and so I destroyed those contacts for, you know, like, they never wanted to hear from me again because it was no good. So, but now I was, like, now I, I was, like, um, hooked. Because the, the, the positive response I'd gotten from those those three pitch, uh, pitch meetings, um, like, convinced me that I was going to somehow sell that idea. So I went and I, like, tr tried to learn, started learning really how to write a script 
this is 2002 still. Yeah. Started really learning how to write a script and uh, read all these books and like wrote 50 drafts of that same script. And I went back to that same pitch fest again and pitched it again better. You know, like did a better pitch. The script was better. And, and I would say I probably had four out of five people wanted it or wanted to read it. And then, then I did this other thing, too. There's this guy named Robert Cosberg who was used to be they, – they, everybody called him the pitch king of Hollywood. Where like He's a guy who could go into any office in Hollywood and sell them ideas because he'd sold a bunch of huge movies. And so everybody always wanted him, like every executive. Like he had an open-door invite to every big office in Hollywood. And so his deal was he would take a one-sentence pitch from any, anybody in the world. And if your idea was worth a damn, he would take it all the way or whatever. And um, and he was actually kind of pretty legit. If you look him up, he's 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 a the, kind of the real deal. So I freaking uh, uh, sent him a pitch, you know, like he I forget how well, like he would take it by email or something like that. And it was the, the same one that I was pitching. And he actually called me back because he wanted it too, but the shit still wasn't ready, and I didn't know that. So I sent him a thing. And he was like, uh, back to the drawing board. And he, you know, never took my calls again. Uh, that happened. Okay, now, an another thing that happened around the same time, I was randomly at a bar um, waiting for a, a, a friend. Me and me and a friend were waiting for the third friend at, at this bar called Good Luck in Los Feliz. And these, uh, just on a random day, completely unrelated, and these three beautiful girls come in, and we had the last table. And they're like, oh, can we sit with you? We'll buy you drinks. And we're like... Twist my arm, sure. <laughs> Have a seat. And so these girls sit down, and um, and it turns out they're all married, you know. And you know they're just waiting for their husbands to show up later, uh, whatever. And but we're stuck in this table, you know. You can't get out because it's you know. So we're just sitting there, and like, well, these girls are just buying us vodka drinks one after another, so whatever, you know. Just just gotta you know keep the conversation. Anyway, so so they. There's, I'm sitting next to this one girl, and she's, you know, just talking about she works in politics or something like that, and we're, you know, just talking about various stuff. And then eventually she gets around and asks me what I do, and I started talking about writing this script. And she's like, uh huh, uh huh. And then what? And 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 I sort of, she's like, can you pitch it to me? And so I pitched her this idea. This is all the same idea that I now taken to two pitch fests and all this stuff. And she's like, you know, that's really good. What are you doing with that? And I was like, well, you know, I want to get into you know, uh, this Dimension Films or Lionsgate or something, but I, I don't know how to get in the door and pitch to somebody like that. She said, well, yeah, you know, my husband works with them all the time because uh, he's a big shot literary agent and he's going to be here in like five minutes. And <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, what? And and she's like, yeah. And so this dude walks in and, and he's, he's, he's basically uh, Ari from Entourage, you know, just walks in with his thousand dollar suit, doesn't even belong in this part of town, you know. Uh, he sits down and you know, there's a few drinks, and he's really bored, and there's a lot of, like, foreplay, like, hey, you know, just talking about Hollywood. And then finally, he's like, all right, lay it on me. What's your what's your little idea? And so, again, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to act like I'm the shit. And so I start pitching it to him. And I've already, by this time, I've, I've pitched, you know, to it just, I don't know, maybe like 10 people. Not, not in a... In a I'm in a very informal way in those pitch fests and stuff, but but I had had this little routine down and I and I, I was confident with it, so I, I I pitched it to him and he, um, gradually, the look on his face gets less and less apathetic and more interested and completely shifts into a different space, and he starts asking me questions 
and then he starts asking me who's seen this, who knows about it, and stuff like that. And uh, and we keep going, and then finally he's like, you know, uh, send that to me right away, and we'll talk. So so I sent it to him. Um, and then again, this is still 2002, 2003, something like that. And so he he calls me on the phone, like a couple weeks later after he gets it, and. Uh, Basically, and, and the first thing he says is, look, I was really excited by the pitch, and I actually read this above a stack of like 10 other things, but um, you really got to go back to the drawing board because this is no, not any good. And uh, so he was cool enough to talk to me for like 25 minutes about why it sucked. I, I didn't want to argue with him, you know, because that's like the sign of like, a, like if you're yeah. really defensive about your work, it means you're a baby and an amateur. And so I just kind of like listen to everything he said and I would and I really disagreed with some of the stuff and I would, try, I would try to sort of you know pose a counter argument without sounding defensive and but he really just cut it all apart and 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 he and, and eventually he was like look there's some things in here you could keep there's a couple things that are good but you really just gotta let this movie be what it is you're trying to be you know something that's not going to work in the modern you know, he's like, you're trying, it's not 1974, you can't make Rosemary's Baby anymore, you can't make a slow thing, you gotta make something that, you gotta let this be what it is, you gotta have, and he started telling me he wanted violence every certain number of pages or something like that. And but and so some of his notes sounded really cynical to me, but but uh, some of them were really intelligent, like he, he knew what he was talking about about things. And also, uh, the script, still, I'd only been writing, I'd only written that screenplay, really. To, I'd written other, like, short things earlier, but that was like the first feature I'd written. So. I basically what I what I realized at that moment was that um, it doesn't is that you've got to the content has to be ready before you can sell it. You know, is that yeah. sounds obvious, but the thing is, look, I was just some some twenty some year old nobody, you know, in L.A., and all those things happened. Like I randomly met a huge agent in a bar. I you know pitch stuff to people so so I started realizing that like if if you have a good idea you can get out there and get it in front of somebody like you, you know because because I mean all that happened to me within like a year and a half without having without knowing anybody without having an uncle in the business or something like I mean I was working in effects but that didn't give me any ends yeah. to any producers no, no producer wanted to hear what what you know what so so and and I didn't really try because I didn't want to you know I didn't want to be that guy on set who who you know that who's like a 25 year old kid who who like tries to like sneak past the boss and go pitch something to the you know so, so it's like I never would have done that you know so, so so what that means is that working in effects the way I was at that time wasn't going to get me any closer to to really pitching any stuff um but but outside of that, just on the street, you know, in Los Angeles, like you can really um, find ways to get things to people. I mean, just by going out drinking or something like that. You know, you, if you really network. So what my point is, like selling it. Um, I think a lot of people use the excuse that like, oh, I don't know anybody in the business and I have no ends, but I have a genius idea. And it's like if you really had a genius script, you could sell it. You know, you, you'd find a way, I, I think. And uh, and I started thinking if I had in my possession three good scripts within two years I'd sell them you know somehow I'd find a way I'd you know just just hit the streets you know and 
Um, so, so I realized that content, the content, I needed to work on the, on that. So I, I decided to quit trying to pitch stuff for a few years and just write and just you know write a bunch of stuff and get good at that. And and uh, then I, I found a, a research screenplay consultants, you know, who who just read your stuff and critique it for you for a fee. And I researched which ones are actually worth a damn and, and which ones are scams and, and uh, found one that I really like. And I had a sort of evolution with them. This was a company that would give you 20 pages of notes on a screenplay. And so I, I would would send them a script and they'd write me 20 pages ripping it apart. You know, this is bleh. like And I, the first one I sent was the one that I'd been pitching to those guys, yeah. to various people. So they ripped that apart and the command, every page, every page, they're like, even just the form is like, you can only have four lines of description at a time. You can't do these big dumb paragraphs. And, and then this, that, and that, and then everything about, about structure, characters, you know, uh, everything. And so I knew I was getting better when like four scripts later they were actually giving me good reviews you know and 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 that's what you have to do you, you've got to have your shit torn apart by professionals you know like you, you can you can start with your friends but at a certain point you've gotta you've gotta have professionals tear your stuff apart well we gotta get to work so i think that's a perfect way to end i want to talk to you some more if you ever have time just I'd, about I'd, film in general i'd love to not just about your project okay but, um so thank you very much, because we actually have a job to do. Yeah. So Thanks. This is incredible. This is my first interview. Uh, oh, well, that's exciting. I'm on too. a podcast. That's like, it's awesome. Very nice. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you. Welcome back to the party, everyone. We're still enjoying our tea and crumpuses here, and we're just about to try uh, James's crumpet sauce. So I've taken it out of the oven. I've let it set 15 minutes. 
Uh, generally, I like to set it, let it set just a little less because I like them warm. But uh, uh, so right. that's what we're doing. We're Let's try it right try now. It. Very golden brown. I see these hideous crumpus, delicious delights. That's really good. Yeah, I I, I, I like sweet bread to begin with. Um, and uh, I didn't mention uh, before, but I'll mention it now because we were doing the traditional way. But, but the little less traditional way that uh, my godmother used to make them is she would put glaze on the top of them and just add more sugar for me. Uh, it's like a glazed donut uh, with the with the, the soft. It's, uh, it's since good. I'm a diabetic, I think I'm going to stick with this. Uh, yeah, yeah, just the egg. It's uh, well, it's so good far though. I'm loving all this Krampus celebrating. I think it's going to catch on in America. Catch on, it already has. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff in popular culture nowadays. Well, you're right, James. You're right. I've noticed, even in commercials, I saw in the G4, they had a promo in the commercials. They got comics. They got comics. Doctor Who has a comic, of course. They mention them. Uh, Chicken Hair, which is a, a comic, uh, it has a crumpus named Banjo. Uh, and Krampus has his own comic, I see. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of children's books and not-so-children's books. There was to the Twas the Night Before Krampus and other horror holiday stories. And they have 12 Nights of Krampus, of course. Yes, Krampus the Yule Lord. I love that. And my favorite, A Kiss for Krampus. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> they got a lot of stuff in, in television as well. Yeah, Supernatural had a Christmas special. That featured Krampus. Uh, the League, which, uh, you know, I, I love, uh, they had a, you know, a, they had they had Krampus episode. Krampus episode, and they said they even went as far as writing Krampus carols, and yes. uh, it was pretty funny. Grimm had a, a, a show that featured Krampus. In the animated cartoons, they had The Venture Brothers, American Dad. I think Scooby-Doo, the new one, uh, what is the it Mystery called? Incorporated. Yeah, Mystery Incorporated. They had that. There's a lot of Krampus products out there. Uh, the eight ball carries the Krampus sweater. I saw a thermos for Krampus. So uh, a Zizzle Pizza has a gift card that comes in a, a, in a cardboard Krampus's mouth. <laughs> I saw a Krampus pillow and Krampus pajamas. They got mugs, t-shirts. Uh, they even have uh, Krampus underwear. My, my favorite, though, is the Nike put out the SB Krampus uh Dunk High Sports You. Uh, that has to be. I, I, I've never seen America. it. I don't know. I saw it in a, a, a catalog, but I don't know if it's for here or, or wherever. They also have a bicycle line called the Surly Krampus, <laughs> which is also good. Along with all this commercialism in America, there's also a growing number of celebrations in honor of the Yuletide Devil. Now, none of them surpassed that shindig thrown in Schmalming, Austria. And they got 1,200 strong there with everyone dressed as Krampus. But America is catching up, and we're going to share a few of the best places uh, that are throwing Krampus fests in America. So there's Krampus Night on December 6th in Bloomington, Indiana. They have a parade with St. Nicholas's and uh, St. Nicholas and dozens of Krampuses and floats. And last year they had a Krampus with two flaming whips. <laughs> That's yeah, well, yeah. double the pleasure. <laughs> and they also have a Krampus toast at a local bar. They have uh, the Krampusnock Ball also in Portland at the Alhambra Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, in the theater they had music and a performance and an art show, and they had a creature for the night. A creature of the night. Yeah, costume, yeah, not a lady of the night. <laughs> costume <laughs> contest. 
Uh, they say in Portland that the Krampus throws hipsters in his basket and carries them off back to the towns they came from. Let's hope that's true. <laughs> it's a Krampus miracle. Yes. Uh, on December 14th in Philadelphia, a Krampuslav a parade. Uh, they have a Krampuslav parade at uh, around uh, their Liberty Lands Park. Yeah, there's a Krampus play in Brooklyn. Uh, on, it was on the 13th. And in Rochester, New York, you can have breakfast with Krampus. Uh, and, and also you bring uh, presents for needy kids. <laughs> so it's kind of like a Toys for Tots with, uh, with, uh, with Krampus. So what do they do in Pasadena? Uh, well, they have a Krampus St. Nicholas play from the turn of the century. Uh, they have a film that's making its U.S. premiere. Uh, it was originally from 1955. It's a Victorian kinder horror classic, Der uh, Struwesh from Peter. <laughs> and, of course, a visit from Krampus, December 13th. Very, very nice. uh, From 6 to 9 p.m. Very good. Oh, oh, they always say it sounds more sinister in German, always, like Das Kapital and, and Mein Kampf. In Los Angeles, uh, they have also a Krampus ball. That was on December 6th. Some are calling it the Krampusstein. They have Bavarian dance and music and a marionette troupe, and they have local and imported Krampuses. Also uh, in L.A., they have a Krampus parade uh, December 13th at uh, 11 a.m. Uh, features a steam-powered Krampus-driven vehicle and uh, the first uh, Austrian Krampuses to visit North America. Very nice. Very nice. So next year, join in the fun or start your own Krampus festivities. And now more stuff. Squeaky Fromm, the Manson family member and would-be assassin of Gerald Ford, is out of jail now. But back in 1994, while she was still in federal prison, the Reverend Glenn Armstrong wrote the following Christmas song dedicated to her. After that, we have Martin Mole and his tale of St. Nick's sobriety. When Jesus died for man's sins, he even died for man's There's 
showered, fed, and quite deloused. Christmas day's coming gone, and squeaky sleeping easy. But on December 26th, it's right back down the river sticks. Even squeaky from loves Christmas. Even squeaky tries her best to celebrate. I'm afraid this song may grate on the friends of Sharon Tate, but even squeaky from loves Christmas. Boys and girls, this is your old friend Martin Mall. And you know what? I just got back from the North Pole. You know what I was doing up there, don't you? That's right, I saw him all right. And all his little dwarves, boy, did I get off on them. I learned so many wonderful things about him. I'd like to sing you a little song, so why don't you, you know, move on up. Come up close and I'll sing to you. Come on, closer. Closer. Come on, I won't bite. Come on, move closer. That's it, right down by my shoes. Great, okay, huddle all around, and I'll sing you a song. All right, you too, Johnny, come on, closer. All year long he's busy making toys For all the little girls and the little boys He puts them in his sled and gives his whip a crack. On Donder, on Blitzen, but never on Smack. Cause Santa doesn't cop out on dope. Has he ever even tried it? Will you know the answer's no? So little kitties, here's my point. Just leave him cookies, save your joint. Cause Santa Claus turns on in his own way. Watching you when I turn on On Christmas Day Silent night, scary night Krampus creeps up to give you fright been naughty, lazy, and bad, so I'll steal you from your mommy and dad, eat you piece by piece, eat you piece. 
by Mr. Grinch, you really are a heel. You're as ah, there's that wonderful voice, that wonderful bass voice. We all know it. The voice of Thurl Ravenscroft. He's as much a part of our childhood Christmases as our childhood breakfasts. For, of course, he was the voice of Tony the Tiger since 1952. And that's one of the wonderful things about revisiting the old Christmas specials. You get to revisit the great voice artists that used to perform in him. And Mr. Ravencroft is a perfect example of one of these uh, voice artists. He, along with Boris Karloff and Dr. Seuss and Chuck Jones. Now, oh yeah, and that Albert Haig, he composed all the music. You know that guy of uh, fame who was... Uh, oh, the guy with the glasses? The guy with the glasses and the beard. <laughs> The, stu the stuffy guy. <laughs> Mr. Shurfrosky Shur or whatever they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from the movie. that That's the guy who wrote all the music for The Grinch. That's hilarious. He made um, uh, Dr. Seuss come to his house. <laughs> and with the excuse that I play, I have a better piano. Because he knew he'd sell it to him. So he played the music. Because Dr. Seuss wrote the lyrics to it. But anyway, we're getting off the track here because we're trying to put the spotlight on old Mr. Ravenscroft here. And we're doing that because of his contribution, you know, to our childhood Christmases. But of course, the Grinch is only the smallest part of his output. He sang and did voice work uh, from the 30s right up to 2005 when he passed away. I don't think many people know about his, uh, his singing career. I, I guarantee you hardly anybody knows about his singing career. <laughs> well, I mean, he sang a lot, but I mean, for we think about him in film, we think about him even in the parts of the Caribbean ride in there. And the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, everyone knows him as one of the three heads of the Haunted Mansion. He came to California, actually, to study at the Otis Art Institute. Uh, he came in 1933. He was going to be a regular artist. He got sidetracked in show business and ended up in all these quartets and uh, choruses. He did a lot of background music for the big band guys. He was in this group called the Mellow Man. And, and they backed up a lot of popular singers. Uh, clear up to the 50s. He, had, well, he did Bing Crosby. He did... Uh, uh, who's the cornet lady? <laughs> Never mind. Anytime somebody needs a bass, man, throw Ravencroft oh, yeah. was there from in that, in that time period. He started his voice work um, in 1940, and that was with playing Monster the Whale <laughs> in Pinocchio. Oh, oh he wasn't Monster. credited with that. He did, he did the Mr. Stork song in Dumbo. Uh, he was in Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, Lady the Tramp, um, 
all kinds of Disney films. A lot of times just singing or different voices. Anytime there was a deep voice. In other Disney, uh, non-Disney stuff, he was the uh, the voice and, you know, no dogs allowed. And the Snoopy oh, yeah, and the home. Snoopy come up. That was, that was him. Oh, man, no dogs allowed. He was in Horton Here's the Who. He was the goblins in the background of the Hobbit. Uh, oh, in the cartoon Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, of course he did the Grinch. Man, that's a that's funny. <laughs> he did a lot of commercials, not just Tony the Tiger. He, he's the one that came up. Well, they they had the saying, but he came up with they're great. That was his contribution. <laughs> well, that's it because you know it's like, <laughs> we want you to say they're great. Okay. <laughs> he at Disneyland, he's in the Country Bears. He's he was used to be in the Mark Twain Riverboat. He was the, the captain. They would narrate you. Oh. He was the Pirates. A lot of background Pirates. Pretty much it's him and Paul Freese doing the whole Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Well, Paul Freese is doing the voiceover stuff, but is he doing the... the he's doing the singing, but he's, he's Pirates, too. All the sorts of... Oh, yeah, because He's the one in Yoho, say, the, you know, yeah. the main Pirate song. Yeah, That's and they him. also say dialogue, you know, in the, yeah. during the thing. So, yeah. Okay. He's in the Tiki Room, too. I think he's got to be the, the carved heads on the walls. Pardon me. He did... Uh, Narration for the pageant of the masters <laughs> until all through the 80s and the 90s, he was the narration. So, now what's the pageant of the masters again? The, that's down there you know, where they have it's that crazy thing where they like recreate he, paintings and artwork with people, like human tableau or something. <laughs> like, huge stage, and suddenly they show you a painting and then it moves and everyone walks away from it. And they, the humans made up the painting anyway. He did the narration for that. Going back to his singing career, uh, in the 1950s, they tried to put him together with all these unknown female singers uh, to try to give him a solo career, but it really never worked. He did a lot of novelty stuff. Um, it wasn't very successful, but he did get to sing with the Andrews Sisters. So now we're going to have a mini Raven Palooza right here with a set that includes a couple examples of, from his singing career and a Tony the Tiger spot. So away we go. Mr. Baseman, you've got that sense of Mr. Baseman, you send that music up to you, it's easy. When you go one, two, three, ba 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 All I do is ba 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 Hey, 
till dawn on Christmas Day. Welcome back, everybody. Unfortunately, this is the end. But it was a great party. For it you. was. We're going to have to make this uh, an annual event. Uh, but next time we'll have to invite Greg. <laughs> but Greg is here. Uh, if only in the uh, magic of the technology of the phone. Oh my gosh, it's Krampus Madness here, guys. I hope it was a great show. This is Greg from Krampus Land signing off. That sounds beautiful. Anyway, we're going to be going out uh, with one of our favorite Christmas songs. It's Dudley Moron. It's Christmas, and I wonder where I am. <laughs> so, until next time, this is Uncle Frank. This is Jimmy Sweets. This is the G-Ride. See you next month. the office Christmas party I started off with a Bacardi I didn't get sauced but right now I'm lost it's Christmas and I wonder where I am I had a beer at my brother's had eggnog at my mother's then two bottles of wine which automobile is mine it's Christmas and I wonder where I am. Someone caught me dancing with a snowman. A policeman came and put me in his car. He said, are you drunk? And I said, no man, but could you drop me off at the next bar? <laughs> I guess my wife must be missing. Who's this dog that I'm kissing? They say his name's Spot, and he likes me a lot. It's Christmas, and I wonder where I am. I was looking for a lady I could dance with, so I stood beneath the mistletoes. Someone said, you'll have a better chance if you take the lampshade off and put back on your clothes. A lampshade, isn't that the best? Time to be going. I'm naked. Is it still snowing? It's time I should leave. I'll be back New Year's Eve. It's Christmas and I wonder where I am. <laughs> it's Christmas and I wonder where I am. Have you seen my hat? I wouldn't want to freeze. What a party. Don't you wish you were me? Oh, and one last thing. Shout out to Julia. <laughs>